Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This week with George Stephanopoulos starts right now. Year two of the war in Ukraine begins. As President Zelensky rallies the Ukrainian people, President Biden shores up alliances. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. And Vladimir Putin vows to fight on. Hurra! But with tens of thousands killed, how will this bloody war end? This morning, our exclusive reporting from the White House. President Zelensky continues to say what he really needs are F-16s. Will you send F-16s? To the front lines. A growing number of Americans believe that the U.S. is giving too much support to Ukraine. What would your message be on the anniversary? And those caught in between. You walk these streets, you talk to people, and the pain is everywhere. Plus, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall. Media blitz. I will be sad if nothing happens. Georgia's grand jury for a woman recommends multiple indictments in the election interference case against Donald Trump and his allies. It's not a short list. There definitely are some names that you expect. But with the 2024 race heating up, has she undermined the case? All the fallout with our powerhouse roundtable. Plus more of David Muir's exclusive interview with President Biden. I think things are a little out of whack, and I don't blame people for being down. From ABC News, it's This Week. Here now, Martha Raddatz. Good morning and welcome to This Week. President Vladimir Zelensky declared the first day of the war in Ukraine the longest and hardest day in Ukraine's modern history. It's been an unbelievably trying year for his country ever since, but also one of resolve. Kyiv still stands, and Ukraine has taken back roughly half of the land it has lost since the start of the war. As we begin year two, the U.S. announced new sanctions against Russia and another round of military aid to Ukraine after President Biden's historic trip to Kyiv and Poland, where he declared that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. The leaders of G7 nations met with Zelensky Friday, forcefully calling for Russia to stop its ongoing aggression. And around the world, monuments were lit up in blue and yellow solidarity, from New York to Paris, Berlin to Sydney. But what comes next? This morning, we're going to assess the state of the conflict, where it's headed, growing concerns about China's role, and speak with Ukrainians on the ground about life under Russia's assault. But we begin with more of David Muir's exclusive interview with President Biden at the White House Friday, where they discuss the U.S. commitment to Ukraine heading into the next year of this conflict. Mr. President, you know as we sit here today, it was one year ago today, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You said in Warsaw that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. So how does this war end and what does victory look like? Well, that depends on what the Ukrainians decide. But here's what we have to do in the meantime. We have to put the Ukrainians in a position 
where they can make advances this spring and summer and move to a place where a negotiated, she, they can negotiate from a position of strength. You announced another $2.5 billion in aid to Ukraine today, $113 billion now. We know the vast majority of Americans support Ukraine, but there are now many who are asking, how long can we spend like this? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how many are asking. I know the mega crowd is. The, the right-wing Republicans are, you know, talking about we can't do this. We find ourselves in a situation where the cost of doing, of walking away, could be considerably higher than the cost of helping Ukraine maintain its independence. We know President Zelensky continues to say what he really needs are F-16s. Will you send F-16s? Look, we're sending him what our seasoned military thinks he needs now. He needs tanks, he needs artillery, he needs air defense, including another HIMARS. There's things he needs now that we're sending him to put him in a position to be able to make gains this spring and this summer going into the fall. You don't think he needs F-16s now? No, he doesn't need F-16s now. Is that a never? Look, first of all, the idea that we know exactly what's going to be needed a year, two, three from now, but there is no basis upon which there is a rationale, according to our military now, to provide F-16s. But you're not ruling it out? I am ruling it out for now. For now. Vladimir Putin told the Russian people this week that China's President Xi is coming to Russia, uh, likely as early as this spring. I know the State Department and the Pentagon now have both warned China not to offer lethal military assistance to Russia. Would that cross a line for you? Look, it's not in China's... I had a very frank conversation with President Xi this past summer on this issue. And I pointed out to him, without any government prodding, 600 American corporations left, left Russia, from McDonald's to Exxon to across the board. And I said, and if you are engaged in the same kind of brutality by supporting the brutality that's going on, I said, you may face the same consequence. I don't anticipate, we haven't seen it yet, but I don't anticipate a major initiative on the part of China providing weaponry to to, uh, uh, to, to, to Russia. But if they did, would that be crossing a line for you, Mr. President? It would be the same line everyone else would have crossed. In other words, we, we impose severe sanctions on anyone who has done that. So there would be serious consequences? I'll let you characterize what they would be. We would respond. What do you make of this Chinese peace plan uh, floated overnight that Putin is now applauding today? I think you answered the question. Putin's applauding it. So how could it be any good? I'm not being facetious. I'm being deadly earnest. I've seen nothing in the plan that would indicate that there is something that would be beneficial to anyone other than Russia if the Chinese plan were followed. And so the idea that China is going to be negotiating the outcome of a war that's a totally unjust war for Ukraine is just not rational. Our thanks to David for that, and we'll have more of David's interview later. The one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine brought promises and hope. President Zelensky saying it's been a year of bravery, pain, endurance, and unity. We have seen that over the past year up close on numerous trips to Ukraine, but never was it as evident as it was this week when we returned again to Lviv, where I was the night the invasion began, as people looked ahead to another year of war 
and looked back on how dramatically their lives have changed. One year ago, Vladimir Putin thought he was poised for victory in Ukraine. On the night of the invasion, 180,000 Russian troops began their brutal assault. A senior Pentagon official who several hours ago texted me and said, you are likely in the last few hours of peace on the European continent for a long time to come. We've heard at least four what appear to be strikes uh, lighting up the night sky. Intelligence at the time suggested Russian forces would sweep into Ukraine and topple the Zelensky government in a matter of days. That did not happen, but the slow grind of this war has been staggering. Civilians slaughtered. From the mass graves of Bucha to the withering assaults in the east, wounding or claiming the lives of more than 100,000 Ukrainian troops, many of them citizen volunteers. In Lviv this week, we saw that loss up close. Services like this held almost every single day. Today we will have... Today we have two ceremonies for our soldiers, the priest told me, heroes of Ukraine. When a soldier has a family, children, he said, it is not easy. You must be very strong. Very hard for you too. Yes, very hard. You are a man of God. What is your message to Russia, to Vladimir Putin? Putin had a rough heart and he forgot that God is in this world. And yet the priest, like all Ukrainians, endures. Air raid sirens and power outages are a part of life now here in Lviv. But structurally and physically, the city has been mostly spared. And yet you walk these streets, you talk to people, and the pain is everywhere. Pain and loss like Katerina's. She told us her 23-year-old brother is still missing in Mariupol. We do not know where he is, she said. We're trying to get help to find him. And this family. They fled Kharkiv with their then three-month-old baby to escape Russian troops. They do not know when they will ever be able to return. In Ukraine, grief is everywhere. This mother knows it all too well. Her 26-year-old son, Artem, a special operations soldier who first fought to defend Crimea in 2014, was overseas when the Russians invaded this time. He returned immediately to defend his country yet again. I see him in our house and I feel really terrible. And uh, I only hugs him, and I remember he's very hot. He's very <laughs> warm. And I, I don't say no words. So, so what can you say? Be, take, take care. Um, um, be, be, uh, <laughs> be careful. Or three months later, Artem died fighting. When you think about Artem's sacrifice for you, for your family, for this country. I think he sacrificed not only for us, 
uh, he sacrificed for free Europe because Putin uh, don't want to take only Ukraine. He, he wants to take everything. He's crazy. For Lviv's mayor, who we spoke to after this year of tragedy, there is still hope that Ukrainian determination, Ukrainian sacrifice will ultimately mean victory. I am optimist. I believe uh, that together with the United States and our partners, we very quickly deoccupate our territory. Tell me what this last year has been like for you. Terrible year. Ukrainian people show brave resilience and we ready fight. For me, for my citizens, every meter of our land, it is motherland. Incredibly courageous people. And we are joined now by President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Welcome, Mr. Sullivan, and welcome back. We know you were on that train with President Biden going in and out of Kiev. Can you give us a sense first of, of what that was like? And I was told there was a special operations team on that train to help out in case anything went wrong. Well, first, thank you for having me, Martha. Um, well, we left from Washington, D.C., from a hangar uh, at a nearby Air Force base in the middle of the night uh, and flew to Poland, where the president got into an unmarked SUV, not his normal limo that everybody is used to seeing, to take an hour-long drive to a train station uh, in Poland, where he boarded this train also in the dark of night. And the train uh, had compartments uh, to be able to work, uh, small bunks to be able to sleep on, and, uh, of course, uh, we had the president, a very small number of his team, including myself, and then a strong component of security. And, and I can't get into the specifics of who composed that uh, security contingent, uh, but he was well protected the whole way. And, and on the F-16s, back to those F-16s, you heard what President Biden said to David Muir. He basically said he is ruling that out for now. Is it possible you to prove them in the future? Well, Martha, at every phase of this war, the president has tried to make sure that the Ukrainian military gets what they need. In the first phase, as they were defending Kyiv, that was Javelin anti-tank weapons and Stinger anti-air systems, and that worked. It helped Ukraine defend Kyiv. In the second phase, it was heavy artillery to help them hold against the Russians pushing in eastern Ukraine. In this phase, the critical element is ground maneuver capability, and that means tanks, armored personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles. And so what the president is saying is he's focused on those capabilities, and the F-16 question is a question for later. But it's possible you could approve them later. I mean, I can't go beyond what the president said today, which is for now, what we're focused on are the things Ukraine needs to be able to retake territory on the ground in the south and the east. And we will cross the bridge of future phases of, the, of this war when they come. Well, just last week, Secretary Blinken told me one of the reasons you're not supplying those is because you have to teach them to fly those jets. You have to maintain those jets. So why not teach them now? So if they need them, if you if, if you want to approve it in the future, they'll have them ready to go. 
From our perspective, the most important thing that we can do is make sure that we maintain focus on what is the highest priority. And honestly, Martha, the highest priority right now is to move as rapidly as possible to build up their capacity to deoccupy those portions of Ukraine that are still being occupied brutally and bloodily by Russian forces. And again, that's where the energy and the emphasis of the U.S. military is in helping the Ukrainian military get the tools it needs to be able to carry out that mission. Uh, and we expect that that will be the central focus of the Ukrainians, as well as of our support for the Ukrainians in the weeks and months ahead. I've heard President Zelensky say speed is so important. You talk about tanks. The administration balked sending tanks over there. And just this week, uh, the secretary of the army said they may not even get those tanks this year. So how is that helpful if you don't approve them in time and get the speed to get things like that over there? I'm glad you asked this question because uh, I think this has been the subject of some confusion. The president originally decided against sending U.S. tanks. They're called uh, Abrams uh, tanks. Abrams tanks. M1A1 Abrams tanks. He originally decided against sending them because his military told them that they would not be useful on the battlefield in this fight. What would be useful would be German tanks, a tank called the Leopard, which many different European countries have. But the Germans told the president that they would not be prepared to send those Leopards into the fight. And those Leopards are arriving now, Martha, until the president also agreed to send Abrams. So in the interests of alliance unity and to ensure that Ukraine got what it wanted, despite the fact that the Abrams aren't the tool they need, the president said, OK, I'm going to be the leader of the free world. I will send Abrams down the road if you send leopards now. Those leopards are getting sent now. And this is actually an example of Joe Biden rallying the global coalition to get Ukraine what it needs. OK, just, just again, those tanks, the Abrams tanks, which she said will go in now, will not be there this year, according to the secretary of the army. Let's move on. The administration has also warned China not to offer lethal military assistance to Russia. What can you share about what China could do? Well, all I can say is what you've heard from Secretary of State, uh, you've heard from other officials in the administration, and, and you just heard from President Biden, which is we have at this point not seen them take the step of providing weapons to Russia for purposes of the war in Ukraine. We are watching closely. We know they haven't taken it off the table. And we are sending a clear message, as are our European allies, that this would be a real mistake because those weapons would be used to bombard cities and kill civilians, and China should want no part of that. So despite that warning, you've seen no indication at this point that China is backing off. It could still happen. Well, it's hard for me to say backing on, backing off. What I can say is so far we have not seen them do it. And I want to ask you one final question about China, the Chinese spy balloon. I want to go back to that. Uh, clearly, that was for surveillance. You've said that. But there were also those three weather balloons shot down very quickly. Uh, you said they were a threat to civil aviation. Since then, no weather balloons have been shot down. Uh, is that because you recalculated the radar once again, or you just no longer consider weather balloons a threat, even though there are hundreds of them right now across the U.S.? My understanding is that the NORAD commander, uh, the general in charge of the defense of North American airspace, has not 
uh, recalibrated our radar, that we continue to be vigilant for unidentified objects coming into U.S. territory. What we did do at the president, at President Biden's direction, Martha, is put in place a set of policy parameters for when we would take lethal action against an object to shoot it down, uh, as opposed to deal with it in other ways. Uh, in the case of those three, the president received a recommendation from his senior military advisors, including the NORAD commander, to take action out of an abundance of caution, and he acted. And since then, he has asked the entire national security enterprise to put together a plan, an operational plan, to ensure that we can protect our airspace against other potential threats, either to civil aviation or to intelligence or, in the extreme case, to people on the ground. Okay, thanks very much for joining us this morning, Mr. Sullivan. We always, always appreciate it. Up next, the Republican chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee just back from a visit to Kiev himself, and later more of David Muir's exclusive interview with President Biden, his message to Americans worried about the economy. You'll see it here first. We're back in 60 seconds. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. There you see the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Michael McCall, who led his own delegation to Kiev just one day after President Biden's visit this week. Congressman McCall joins us now. Good to see you. We've all been in Ukraine this week. You met with President Zelensky. You said in Ukraine while you were there that you're seeing increasing momentum towards getting long-range missiles and F-16. You heard what President Biden said. You heard what Jake Sullivan said. It doesn't look like it. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I was at the Munich Security Conference, met with a lot of the high-ranking military officials, including our Supreme Allied Commander. Uh, they're all in favor of us putting not only F-16s in, but longer-range artillery to take out the Iranian drones in Crimea. Uh, in fact, the word I kept hearing was, uh, we need to put everything we have into there. I know the administration says uh, as long as it takes. I think with the right weapons, it shouldn't take so long. And quite frankly, Martha, this whole thing is taking too long. 
And it really didn't have to happen this way. But but you heard Jake Sullivan say, look, our military is looking at the ground. What they need right now is tanks. What they need is infantry. Why do you think F-16s would make a difference? Because it can travel the entire country with great speed. It can knock out targets. Uh, it can't protect the country. Also could get shot down. There are a lot of air defenses, especially over on the border. It, it, it could. And, you know, the, but the fact is, if we don't give them everything, if they don't get the momentum right now <clears throat> with the Russian offensive coming into country right now, uh, they have a window of time with the counteroffensive. Uh, that's why it's important when I talk to these top military officers, give them everything they ha- that you can now so they can win this thing. When we give them what they can, uh, what they can really use and ask for, they win. Uh, when we slow walk and slow pace this thing, uh, it drags it out. And that's precisely what Putin wants. What, what could you do at this point as chair, at this point legislatively? Is there really anything you could do? Yeah, well, we can certainly write into our appropriations bills prioritizing weapon systems. We intend to do that. But in addition, Martha, this was a bipartisan delegation uh, to Munich. Um, my delegation in, in uh, Ukraine all agreed with Zelensky that the attackums and the F-16s were appropriate right now. I talked to General Milley last night. I don't think it's off the table. I think with enough pressure from Congress on both sides of the aisle, uh, we can get into Ukraine what they really need to win this fight. Otherwise, what are we doing in Ukraine? And, and even if they don't want them now, do you think they should start training? For God's sakes. I mean, it takes three to six months to train we need to do this now. And I know the argument is made, well, we need to look at the budget. The fact is, you heard with the Abrams tanks, they won't go in for another year. Uh, I've met with the Ukrainians being trained by the Poles on the Leopard tanks, which will go in in two weeks as this offensive takes place. Two weeks. Uh, that's going to be a bit of a game changer as well. And I hope we can change the, the course and direction that the administration has with respect to the military strategy. I, I want to talk about China. What do you know about China possibly providing lethal aid to Russia, and how do you think the U.S. should respond to it? Well, Chairman Xi and uh, Putin, are, uh, they have this unholy alliance since the Beijing Olympics. He called uh, Putin, uh, she called Putin his best friend uh, several years ago. Uh, we do know that we have intelligence that's been reported uh, that they are contemplating sending 100 drones into Russia. We also know they're buying all their energy from them, economically You say it's been them. reported. Do you know that's what they're looking at, is sending in drones? And other lethal weapons. Like what? I can't get into that. The, the fact is, the fact that they're going to meet next week, Chairman Xi and Putin, to discuss this unholy alliance that they have to put weapons into Ukraine, to me, is very disturbing because while it may be Ukraine today, it's going to be Taiwan tomorrow. That's why this is so important. You know, a big deal this week has been that President Biden was in Ukraine. He wasn't in East Palestine, where that train derailed with those toxic chemicals. Republican Josh Hawley said this week that the Republican Party can be the party of Ukraine and globalists or the party of East Palestine and working Americans, not both. Do you agree with that? I think that's a false choice. I think the president should have gone to Palestine uh, when we had this major chemical spill. But it doesn't mean we disregard what's happening, this struggle for the global balance of power that we're facing right now. We haven't seen anything like this since my father's generation, World War II. Largest invasion in Europe, the biggest threat to the Pacific since World War II. We can't put our head in the sand and ignore this. Otherwise, the Russians will be on the Polish border. 
and Chairman Xi will invade Taiwan. Uh, I think we can do both. We're a great nation. An ABC Washington Post poll earlier this month found that 50% of Republicans believe the U.S. is doing too much to support Ukraine. We know you care very much about that. That's up from 18% last April. So why is the support slipping? And how will you approach that? And what can you do about that? I think because it's taking too long. We're not giving them the weapon systems they need. Uh, that when we talk to President Zelensky, when I talk to our top military commanders say that they need in theater right now. Let's put that in. The president, by the way, says that military advisors tell him they don't need those. Uh, when the Supreme Allied Commander speaks, I, I listen. And just when they unlock the Leopard tanks with Germany, putting in some Abrams tanks, we can do the same thing with all these other uh, you know, aircraft with F-16s, attack them. But, but are you worried about the aid? Out. Are you worried about the aid in this coming year? You can see there's some Ukraine fatigue. Clearly, one of the reasons President Biden went over there was to get support. Of course. I mean, I, I am. I still think the majority in, in the Congress support this. They also want to know, they want accountability to the taxpayer. I did a firsthand, you know, look at this in theater in Ukraine and in Poland about the humanitarian assistance. We have three IG uh, audits right now. We have an audit by Deloitte. Uh, we also have end-use monitoring on the weapons and barcoding systems. They want to know that their money's being spent wisely. And I think once they know that, they will stand. What would Reagan do, I would ask my fellow colleagues, right? What would he do? He brought down the Soviet Union. I think he would stand for freedom and democracy. I, I, I want to ask you one final question here, uh, and back to Congress, about Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. This week, she repeatedly called for a national divorce to separate the country by red and blue states. This is what she tweeted. We need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke, woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. When I asked you last month about, about her serving on the Homeland Security Committee, you said you think she has matured and is trying to become a team player. Do you still think that when you hear something I, like that? You know, I don't, I don't speak for her. The great thing about this country is we can have political dialogue, discourse. We are a democracy. We have differences of opinions. Uh, I will say uh, divisive rhetoric, uh, I think, polarizes this nation, uh, and I think it hurts this nation. I think what we need today is a voice that can unify the nation on things that really matter, like the economy, like the border, like, you know, the largest invasion in Europe since World War II and a threat to the Pacific. We should all be standing as Americans. I think when I go out across the country, that's what people want to hear. Okay. Thanks very much for joining us, Congressman. We appreciate Thanks it always. Martha. The roundtable is coming up. Plus what President Biden told David Muir about running for re-election in 2024 and questions about his age. That exclusive interview next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? 
I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics Podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Is there any reason for any of us to think that he is not running again? Well, he says he's not done. He's not finished what he started. And that's what's important. And I think, uh, look at all that Joe has has done, has accomplished. So is all that's left at this point is just to figure out a time and place for the announcement? Pretty much. First Lady Jill Biden speaking to the Associated Press in Kenya, certainly making it sound like her husband is all in to run again. David Muir pressed the president on 2024 at the White House on Friday and got his reaction to Americans saying they feel worse off now than when he came into office. Let me ask you the question everyone is asking. Are you running? Well, apparently someone interviewed my wife today, I heard. I heard that, too, just before I came in. I, I got to call her and find out. No, all kidding aside. Uh, my intention is from, hasn't been, been from the beginning to run. But there's too many other things they have to finish in the near term before I start a campaign. Let me ask you about a conversation that people are having uh, at home. Both your supporters and your critics, they know that if you're reelected, you would be 82 when you're sworn in. You would be uh, 86 at the end of your term. Is your age part of your own calculation into whether to run again? No, uh, but it's legitimate for people to raise issues about my age. It's totally legitimate to do that. And the only thing I can say is watch me. I want to ask about the economy. You talk often about how the inflation, the rate of inflation has begun to slow. Unemployment now at its lowest level in 50 years. But you've also seen the polls. Our latest ABC News poll shows four in 10 Americans say they're worse off than when you were elected. Only 16% said they were better off. So why is that? Why aren't Americans feeling this? Well, look, I think it goes well beyond the economy. Think about it. You make the news. I mean, you interview for the news. Can you think of anything they turn on the television and go, God, that makes me feel good? Almost anything. Everything is in the negative. We're also finding out now that uh, one of the outlets has decided that they even put things on they know to be false in order to uh, increase their ratings. So I think things are a little out of whack, and I don't blame people for being down. You know, when you had a year, two years of, uh, of the pandemic, kids out of school, uh, the mental health problems in the country are seriously increased, especially among young people. Some things are, for example, even feeling down about employment, they've got better jobs. They're making more money. Inflation is still higher than it should be, and, uh, you know, Everything from gasoline prices to a, to a, a war going on in Ukraine. I mean, so I can't think of a time when there's been greater uncertainty, notwithstanding the fact we've created an 800,000 manufacturing job. We're better off than virtually any other major nation in the world economically. But it's understandable why people are just down. Okay, let's bring in our roundtable to talk about all of this. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former DNC Chair Donna Brazil, ABC News Senior National Correspondent Terry Moran, and NPR White House Correspondent Asma Khalid. Welcome to all of you. And Donna, I'm going to start and pick up with you on what Jill Biden said and what <laughs> Joe Biden said. He said, 
He's running, basically, but he has things to finish. What kind of things does he have to finish? Well, first of all, he has to get a budget back through uh, Congress. He has a debt ceiling uh, that is coming due. We, he's still litigating the, the war in Ukraine. But, you know, the president said it uh, very well. He's, he wants to finish the job. He has every right to finish the job. He acknowledged that he, he recognized that his age is, a, is, is a, an issue with some voters. But I think this president has done enough and he's committed to serve the American people. And at some point, this hopefully this summer or fall, I don't think he should announce this spring. Chris, I, we should give you some time off. Uh, spring break is good for everyone. It is. Uh, but do it sometime this summer, this fall. And, and, and Asma, NPR's poll this week showed him with the highest approval rating since March. Not super high. Still underwater. But yes. uh, still underwater. But is that something he's waiting for as well, to see that his numbers go up after some of these things are complete? I, I mean, I think it's notable that it has inched up, um, particularly after the midterms. I mean, Democrats did... Uh, very well in the midterm elections. And I think that that reflects in terms of how President Biden is now being perceived. I think one of the other sort of big caveats, though, for the president is this ongoing Justice Department investigation of classified documents. Certainly for the White House, it would be smoother sailing if that could be wrapped up. And, and Chris, the president also told David it is totally legitimate for people to raise concerns about his age, but said it's not a factor in his decision. He just says, watch me. Yeah, we have been. That's his problem. His problem is that he doesn't look up to it. And you can see him in all different types of physical manifestations that he doesn't look up to it. Um, you look at his schedule. Um, and, and, and typically, um, this is not a guy who has you know, spent a ton of time at the White House. Um, more time in Delaware than he spent in other places. Okay, but he was in Ukraine this week, Chris. Well, then, look, that's good. I mean, look, everybody has a moment, Martha, but we're talking about he wants us to watch us. We've watched him for two years, and I don't think it's going to get any better. I mean, let's face it. Aging is inevitable for all of us. It doesn't just apply here, to here. Joe Biden, yeah. right, to every one of us. And you slow down a little bit the older you get. We're talking about unprecedented territory here. 82 years old when he ends this term. We really going to see an 86-year-old president? I think Americans are going to be very concerned about it. And I think, I said this a couple weeks ago and got Don all hot. But, you know, fact is, it's going to be a lot of focus on Kamala Harris if they run. Because a lot of Americans are going to be saying, a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for President Kamala Harris. And are they going to be comfortable with that or not? Terry, age. Yeah. I want to go back to the age thing again. Yeah. Well, it's hard to think of a world leader who is... 86 years old ever, except for popes sometimes. And they're generally, they've got to die in office, at least did before Benedict. <laughs> and so you're, you're looking at an unprecedented situation that I, that I don't think the, the country is, is, is ready for. But one of the things that Joe Biden believes is that he has been affirmed twice in his understanding of this American moment. And that's what makes presidents. It is the candidate connecting with the country in the way that the country responds to. And 2020 and 2022, which was essentially a referendum, he believes, I'm sure, I've got it right. I get them, they know that. And, and Donna, I wanna ask you about the economy. He didn't exactly make a strong argument with that, saying it's understandable why people are just down. That doesn't seem like a winning slogan there. No, and that's not gonna be a slogan if he decides to run for re-election. And yes, America is ready for a woman president at some point, and Kamala Harris is prepared. If that moment 
uh, comes in her life to run for president. But you this is not about Kamala. This is about continuing to invest in the American people, invest in the future of America, which is what the Biden-Harris administration has been doing. I, I noticed how you definitely dodged that question about the economy. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the economy is always central to the conversation when you're running for president. The American people want to feel better about their, their personal circumstances as well as the country. But again, this is a president who's invested in the long term. Uh, he's spending money on infrastructure, spending money on making sure that we're connected, making sure that we have the workforce for the future. I think when it comes to the president re-election, he will have an incredible case to make to the American people. And Asma, you're at the White House every day. You watch President Biden, you've seen him on the road. To, to Terry's point, does he connect with people? Is the enthusiasm there? I mean, I think that depends on sort of where he goes in the country. I want to go back, though, for a second to the economics question, because probably for the last year leading up to the midterms, I really dug deep on inflation. And I will say I was the first person to raise my hand and say I thought that that was really going to derail Democrats in the midterms. It ultimately did not. And I think if we look at the inflation picture today, the economy is, by most metrics, healthier than it was six months ago. And so I think that if we're going to look at the X factor of the economy for President Biden heading into 2024, I think he's potentially in a better position than Democrats were in the midterms. And ultimately, the economy did not factor into the midterms as much as we thought it was going to. And, and Terry, speaking of connecting, I want to go back to the train derailment in East Palestine. Mis mistake for him not to go? Should he go now? Is it too late? He should go. Uh, this is a, an extraordinary event, not just for the people of East Palestine, but it, it has come to stand for something bigger in the country. And Democrats do have something to say to mm -hmm. large forces, large corporate forces exploiting people in rural America. They, they, they're losing on the cultural issues, but as Bernie Sanders and some others have demonstrated, they can connect on that. And it, it, he left that trick on the table for Donald Trump to come in and say, I'm your guy, even though it was the Trump administration which changed the regulations which helped perhaps to contribute to this event. It came to stand for something big in the country, and we look to presidents for leadership on that. Chris, mistake for uh, him not to go, and is it too late? Always a mistake not to go. Look, if you're an executive leader and there is a disaster, people expect you to be there, and they're comforted by you being there. Whether they support you or not philosophically, you're the president, you're the governor, Look, I saw this during Sandy and a number of other things. The most important thing was to be there, to be able to show people you were in charge, you were in touch. I remember a woman saying to me the first day after Sandy, you haven't forgotten us. People are worried that they're being forgotten. And it's never too late to go. He'll get some criticism, but he should go. Okay, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, the forewoman of the Georgia grand jury investigating possible election interference by Donald Trump and his allies Revealing indictments could be coming. We'll discuss it all next. I will tell you, it's, it's not a short list. I mean, we saw 75 people, and there are six pages of the report cut out. So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes. Are these recognizable names, names that people would know? There are certainly names that you would recognize. 
Emily Kors, the forewoman of the Georgia special grand jury investigating whether Donald Trump and others were interfering with the 2020 election. She's now under fire after her media blitz this week. We are back with the roundtable. And Terry, you cover the courts for us. This interview may have been toe curling, but did she really break any rules? Well, no formal rules since the judge had said you can't talk to reporters and, and that is a grand juror's right. Please, the judge said, don't don't damage the investigation. But that's what she just did. Yeah. And in in she beclowned herself, for one thing, in the argot of the time. I mean, she's, she looked like a fool, like somebody looking for their 15 minutes and damaged the investigation because it's this is no way to run a popsicle stand, much less a grand jury investigation, the former president of the United States. Yeah. In one of the biggest cases, you know, in Georgia history, she's created a nightmare for the prosecutor who may bring charges, for the judge who's going to preside over any trials, and just given a gift to all the defendants, Donald Trump, uh, if he is indicted, and others as well. Chris, the yeah. former prosecutor, yeah. did, she, did she damage it? Sure. And specifically, why? Because she's now going to be a witness. If you're the defense, you're going to call her in, and you're going to ask her to explain all the stuff she was talking about. And it's a distraction for the prosecution. It's also evidence of the fact that prosecutors don't get to pick your grand jurors, right? They're randomly selected, a grand jury comes in, and you get the grand jury you get. And so, you know, this is gonna be embarrassing for the prosecution. Um, as Terry said, no rules or laws were broken. The only people who can't speak about what happens in a grand jury are the prosecutors. Witnesses are free, feel free to speak, and grand jurors can speak, but they usually don't because the prosecutors say, you're gonna damage all the work you've done here if you do. This woman obviously doesn't care and wants, as Terry said, her 15 minutes. Well, we don't and, really and know Osprey. her motivation. We don't know her motivation. What could it possibly be? Yeah, but I mean, who knows? I mean, is this to create a GoFundMe because she's gonna have to lawyer up? We don't know her motivation. She seemed quite animated to talk about what was occurring behind closed doors. But we, but here's what I- And clearly inexperienced with the media. Yeah. That's yeah, what I was gonna yeah. say. It, you could get a sense that this was an opportunity for her. Um, yeah. You know, which I think to your point though, is really interesting about the prosecution because I mean, the Georgia case, there are so many you know, multiple different legal challenges that the former president is facing. And all legal experts have said the Georgia case was really among, you know, some of the strongest, uh, the most prominent case. And when you look at Donald Trump running again in 2024, mm. I've always thought that, you know, more than his potential Republican opponents, it's the threat of legal challenges that actually might pose a big but, problem. But Donald Trump also gets huge talking points out of this, out of, mm -hmm. out of these interviews, right? He's gonna take advantage oh, of Oh, sure, right? I mean, and, and it does, I, I think, it, it's, it just raises, I think, the entire case and the entire investigation um, into question. And that's advantageous for the former president. And, and Terry, this isn't the only investigation. No, there are several investigations, but in this one, with the district attorney in Atlanta, and certainly with the attorney general in New York, you have prosecutors who made it a political issue to get Donald Trump. And that has been the hope of, of liberals and of Democrats for a long time, that someone somewhere is going to find a charge that sticks. And that's not the way politics should be run. That's not the way prosecution should be run. You know, Letitia James, the, the attorney general in, in New York, literally ran on a campaign promise that he should be scared of her and she will find out where he's laundering all his money. And that reminds me of the great speech by Justice Jackson, former Supreme Court Justice, yep. who said the danger comes when prosecutors don't choose their cases, 
when they choose their defendants. Mm -hmm. right. And the shoe is going to be on the other foot. We cannot have that kind and, of And, and Osman, just on, on the special counsel, you've got, you've got Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump now subpoenaed. Yep. Do, you, do you imagine that He'll try executive. I, I mean, I they'll try executive that, privilege I mean, that's, on that. That's what I imagine would happen. I mean, you all probably know better than me, but it seems like the president, uh, former president, I'm sorry, has um, tried to exert executive privilege when anybody close to him is potentially going to be. These folks are going to be in the grand jury and they're going to testify. Um, so is Mike Pence. Um, this idea that the speech and debate clause. Um, he's a member of the legislative branch when he's presiding <laughs> Says over he's that. Says he's not going to, yeah. But, right. Well, look, everybody can say they don't, mm -hmm. but grand jury subpoenas, having issued many of them in my life, are pretty compulsory documents. And I think there's not going to be a judge who's going to let Mike Pence or Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump avoid having to testify before that grand jury. They can always take five if they want. They can plead five. And, but that means that you have evidence that may incriminate you. Um, there's stuff that's implied about taking five. In fact, the former president used to say all the time, the only reason someone takes five is if they're guilty. <laughs> he used to say that all the time. Yeah. Don, we have just a, a short time here, but I, I want to end where we began, and that's Ukraine. And, and your thoughts politically on President Biden's trip to Ukraine. Uh, Martha, when I, I got up early that morning for whatever reason and I saw the president of Ukraine, I was like, yes, yes. Uh, we need to be there because uh, the Ukrainian people have suffered so much and they're standing up for all of us, for democracy, for a country that invaded them. So I was proud to see the president take that 10-hour trip on the train to show not just the Ukrainian, but show the world that we will stand by our, our allies. 10 hours in and 10 hours back. Believe me, those are, those are rough trips to get over there. Thanks, all of you. We'll see you soon. And that's all for us today. Thanks for sharing part of your Sunday with us. Check out World News tonight and have a great day. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.